Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Thalipan Naren and I'm an addiction medicine advanced trainee in Melbourne as well as a general practitioner and I'm joined by Dr. Fergal Armstrong, a general practitioner as well as addiction medicine and lifestyle medicine specialist. Fergal, good to have you on the show yet again. Hi Thalipan, how are you? Good. And on the episode today, we're going to be talking as a continuation on all the things that we've talked about withdrawal management, and we'll be talking about anti-craving medications and relapse prevention with these medications. And these are quite an important adjunct to all the things that we've discussed in the episodes earlier. So I'm going to start off by asking a few questions on the commonest anti-craving medications, acamprosate or camprol and naltrexone. So Fergal, can you tell us a bit about acamprosate? Yeah, so acamprosate is otherwise known as calcium and acetylhomatorine. And basically, it's like alcohol in that it, it occupies similar receptors uh, to alcohol within the brain. So it mimics the biological effect of alcohol. So ultimately, it increases GABA neurotransmission and decreases uh, glutamate neurotransmission. So it, it, it has the same biological effect. And I, I say to people, look, it, it's designed to reduce cravings. So imagine if you had no alcohol on board you, and you were thirsty and you were craving, that first pint would just be nectar to you. But imagine if you already had six pints on board you wouldn't crave so much. And that's that's how I explain what a camprosate does. It fills the, the brain with the feeling of already having had a drink and therefore helps reduce craving. And we know that it's, uh, it's, it's got a good evidence base for uh, reducing craving and for maintaining abstinence. Some of the randomized controlled studies find that it, it, it increased um, uh, increased abstaining by 11 days in their trials. Now, that may not sound much, but that does translate into a significant clinical effect for a camprosate uh, to help people reduce their, their drinking and actually maintain um, uh, abstinence within the context of psychosocial interventions. Excellent, and that is important. None of the things that we've talked about work in isolation. So acamprosate is an effective medication in conjunction with a few other things. Just going back down to acamprosate, there are a few things that we do need to be aware of as well. So acamprosate, an effective medication, but we don't recommend it in severe liver disease. So child PUC cirrhosis, and also in significant renal impairment. And by that, EGFR being less than 30 or creatinine over 120 milligrams. Other than that, um, the other things I think to remember are dosing. Uh, and I think if, if you remember nothing from this episode, at least remember 60 kilograms, because that's the weight that you need to know a patient is above or below for dosing. So if the patient's above 60 kilograms, the dose of acamprosate is two milligrams TDS or three times a day. And if they're below 60 kilograms, it's four tablets a day, usually two, two tablets Mane, one Midi and one Nocte, or two tablets twice a day, uh, whichever dosing regimen you want to choose. Does that sound fair to you? 
Yeah, there are various dosing regimes. Uh, I mean, so just let's assume we're talking about someone over 60 kilograms. So six tablets a day. Now, everyone forgets the midday dosing. So there is good efficacy for uh, three tablets in the morning, three tablets in the afternoon or evening rather than the midday dose. So you can either do two tablets three times a day or three tablets twice a day. And they work just as well. What are the Excellent. side effects, Philippe, of uh, Camprosate? So the common side effects that people complain about uh, can be nausea, a bit of gastrointestinal upset, feeling a bit unwell while, while taking the medication. And a lot of those uh, side effects are easily explained and tolerated. So most of the patients I've put on Camprosate, although they do grumble a bit about the side effects, the side effects by and of themselves are usually not the main reason people stop taking the medication. Is that your experience yeah, as well? exactly. So the side effects are not treatment limiting. It's usually perceived lack of efficacy or, or going back on to you know, drinking. So that leads me on to the, my next question to you is how long do you, should you be on a camprosate for? And does that duration of treatment alter if people are starting to drink again? I'll answer the second part of your question first in that if someone's drinking, I usually still encourage them to continue on with a camprosate and the anti-craving medications, to be honest, just to kind of maintain that continuation with treatment. Mm -hmm. The treatment duration does depend. I, I guess usually we would recommend beyond 12 weeks and between 12 weeks and 12 months, but yeah. the practical answer is the treatment can be indefinite. and. Yeah. We certainly do have patients who have been on these medications for quite a long time period and it is quite safe. So my advice is I would tell the patient to expect to be on this medication for the long term. We can review and check uh, compliance and also effect, but it is a medication that will probably be a feature of their lives for some time to come. So is that your practice as well, Fergal? Yeah, it's it's a very good question. That so I usually say, look, how do you how long do you use antidepressants for? And really, the answer is for as long as they work. And so, yeah, I have a very lax view on the duration of treatment. And if people get benefit from it, great. And if they don't, well, we stop it. But so I, I would persist with it for six weeks if people were continuing to drink. But if it helped people achieve abstinence, you know, lifelong, perhaps, you know, I wouldn't stop it. There, there are, there is guidance that suggests that you should, you know, it, it's optimally used for 12 months, but, you know, rules are meant to be broken and patients don't usually read guidance documents quite so well as we do. No, if only that was the case. Yeah, uh, if everyone yeah. followed the course of Harrison's, uh, I guess we'd probably be out of the job anyway. Yeah, well, now, that's, a, that's an interesting point. So what you're saying then is that the knowledge of health is all that is required for people to be healthy. Well, see, I would argue against that, that people have bad habits. <laughs> this brings me to the second anti-craving medication that we should be talking about, and that is naltrexone. Now, naltrexone is a mu receptor antagonist, and it works by decreasing the endogenous uh, dopamine that is produced while uh, people are drinking alcohol, so it decreases the pleasurable effects of alcohol. Mm. In your practice, Virgil, uh, when and how do you use naltrexone? So, 
I mean, yeah, just to just to recap on the point that you made, first of all, I mean, it's really interesting to note that naltrexone is clinical evidence of the fact that the opioid system is closely linked with the reward system for alcohol as well as for its own opioids. So, uh, you know, um, not only is uh, heroin nice and fun, but so too is alcohol, and they ultimately intermesh in the, in the neurobiology. But all roads lead to Rome, and all substance use leads to raised dopamine in the nucleus accumbens. And so we know that for alcohol, we can minimize the fun and pleasure and the joy that we get from alcohol by using opioid antagonists, such as naltrexone. Um, how do I determine whether or not people get, get used to it? Well, there is some evidence that there's a kind of a genetic predisposition to it, so that people have talked in the past about alleles, so the ASP40 allele, which is a genetic mutation of the mu receptor, that supposedly identifies a cohort of patients that are more likely to benefit from it. Um, but people who are, people who crave a lot, people who, who have a family history, I think are people that I would particularly want to try naltrexone with bearing in mind the, you know, the contraindications, which I'm sure we'll get to in a second, and compare that with a camprosate. So for, for a camprosate, uh, I think of people with a high degree of anxiety or the elderly or people with a family history. Uh, they're, they're the ones that I would use a camprosate for. So um, a camprosate for anxiety, that's how I remember that one, and naltrexone for craving. Excellent. So we were talking a bit about uh, naltrexone and, and the contraindications just then. So the contraindications would be, you mentioned heroin and opiates. So if you are on opiate medication or opiate substitution medication, then naltrexone yeah. is naturally contraindicated. Yeah. And also the teachings do say that if your transaminases or your liver function test is three times the upper limit of normal, mm -hmm. then naltrexone also should not be prescribed. Yeah. Is that your practice also? Well, no. Again, you know, we, we know what the rule book says, but here's the question for you. If someone was achieving abstinence as a result of being on naltrexone, would you really stop the naltrexone of the LFTs if the transaminases went above three times upper limit of normal? I mean, I, I think that, you know, so long as they don't have decompensated liver disease, I think... Overall, the benefits of being on naltrexone, if it is contributing towards abstinence, outweigh the risks of being on naltrexone. But, but I am aware that this is a controversial point and is going against the rule book. But you know, what's your view on this? I think it depends on the patient and it depends on the liver function tests. If you can monitor the patient and the liver function remains stable and the yeah. patient is having a good clinical outcome, we know that continued drinking is hazardous for your health, hazardous for your liver function, and will lead to further complications, including potentially cirrhosis and decompensated liver disease. Yeah. But if someone can be maintained on, in abstinence and we can monitor their liver function and there's no significant deterioration, I'm with you uh, from a harm minimization point of view or a harm reduction point of view. In a situation like that, I would probably be inclined to continue on with the naltrexone. Yeah. So what would you say are the common side effects for naltrexone? Usually people complain similar, somewhat similarly to a camprosate of, of, uh, of diarrhea, um, abdominal bloating, uh, nausea, uh, and some GI upset. Th those are 
the common side effects that, that I hear about a bit. Again, mm. usually not treatment limiting, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, it's, usually, uh, it's usually something else that causes people to, to end up uh, turning off nal naltrexone. Has that yeah. been your experience? Yeah, some people for me report fatigue as a side effect, uh, but yeah, so that, those are the kind of the usual side effects, but then we've got to bear in mind that yes, naltrexone is, it is listed that naltrexone does cause liver derangement, which is ironic because it causes liver derangement, but it's treating a condition that causes even worse liver derangement. Um, so, I mean, in terms of choice of anti-craving medication, I mean, basically, if someone's got really bad liver derangement, you tend towards a camprosate. But if someone's got really bad renal impairment, well, then you tend towards an altrexone. So, and also in terms of therapeutic goals, because, you know, they say that, as, as we've already just said, a camprosate prevents, or sorry, a camprosate supports abstinence and naltrexone prevents relapse, or at least it present, prevents a lapse from becoming a relapse. But then that opens the door into what we call the Sinclair method. Could you talk a bit about that? So the Sinclair method or pharmacological extinction is when one takes naltrexone half an hour to an hour before drinking. And what the theory of this method is, and it is quite effective, is that it decouples the sensation of deep drinking and pleasure. Yeah. So basically by following the Sinclair method, we're getting rid of that reinforcing um, mechanism with alcohol where we drink for pleasure. We drink, but we get no pleasure. And then once we realize that, we end up stopping drinking. And it is quite an effective technique. I've certainly seen it work uh, quite well. But you do need a patient who is quite disciplined and will continue to follow the, the paradigm for, for the Sinclair method. Very similar to a patient for uh, disulfiram or antabuse, which we will segue over to. So disulfiram is another one of the aversive therapies that we use for alcohol use disorder. Uh, and Fergal, can, I don't really have all that much experience prescribing disulfiram. Have you used it much at all? Well, I have used it, but you know, I don't have a vast amount of prescribing experience either. And I think that speaks to the fact that it is very much third line or even fourth line in, in relapse prevention medication. But first of all, if we understand what it does, so basically it inhibits aldehyde dehydrogenase. Um, now, why is that important? So we know that alcohol is metabolized by alcohol dehydrogenase into acetaldehyde. And we know that acetaldehyde is metabolized into ethanoic acid vinegar by aldehyde dehydrogenase. Now, acetaldehyde is toxic and causes incredibly severe hangovers, amongst other things. So normally what happens is that the relationship between alcohol dehydrogenase activity and aldehyde dehydrogenase activity is very closely aligned. So really, when we drink alcohol, we don't actually experience any buildup of acetaldehyde. It goes straight to vinegar. But if you inhibit that enzyme deliberately, what you do is for every molecule of alcohol you ingest, you're creating a molecule of acetaldehyde, which makes you feel really sick. And that's what disulfiram does. So it gives you, as you've said, this aversive experience. So every time you you drink alcohol, you feel like puking and you feel flushed and you're terrible and you've got this pounding headache. So you think, oh, I'm not going to go through that again. Therefore, I'm going to abstain from alcohol. But as you've also said, 
you know, these therapies only work if you take them. So, you know, using the Sinclair method only works if you take it. Using naltrexin and acamprosate regularly for relapse prevention only works if you take it. Using disulfiram only works if you take it. And further to that, the evidence of efficacy uh, is, is better if you have daily pickup or directly observed uh, administration by pharmacists, which doesn't really happen with the disulfiram in, um, in Australia. It does in the UK. Um, so that's how it works. It, there is evidence that it does actually uh, reduce uh, the, or sorry, increase the, the likelihood of abstinence within the first 12 weeks of therapy, but beyond 12 weeks, it's not proven to be any better than a camprosate or naltrexone. Uh, what do you think about the side effects and the contraindications, etc., for disulfiram? I think there's a reason why disulfiram is third and fourth line, and it's mainly because the side effects can be quite significant, especially if you're dealing with a compromised patient with um, already compromised liver disease or renal disease. Mm. Because we're talking about aversive therapy, um, because people get flushed, they can feel nauseated, they could start vomiting, mm. sometimes get quite significant gastrointestinal side effects. Some patients are at significant risk of dehydration and electrolyte abnormality, and if you're already compromised, that can be quite fatal. So, again, you have to choose the right patient for the right treatment, and as I mentioned earlier, my experience with disulfiram is, is limited, and it's not something that I've prescribed or am all that inclined to prescribe, if, if yeah. truth be told. So I, I think of the contraindications to disulfiram with the mnemonic pain, P-A-I-N-E, so psychiatric contraindications, you don't get it with people with unstable mental states. A for allergies, like most things, and I for ischemic heart disease. So we know that actually increases, uh, uh, causes dyslipidemia. So if you've had ischemic heart disease or a heart attack, you, know, you shouldn't be on it. And then N for nursing, so it's problematic for uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding. Oh, and Fergal, we were talking about contraindications in special populations there as well. Mm. Harkening back to our earlier discussion about acamprosate and naltrexone, acamprosate is B2 in pregnancy and naltrexone is B3. Yeah. In a pregnant woman who is drinking at hazardous levels, mm. what would your process and opinion be in commencing one of these anti-craving agents? So we know that alcohol is teratogenic. And unfortunately, there's no safe amount of alcohol that we can say to mums, look, you can drink this much and you're not going to risk baby. Uh, you know, any amount of alcohol in pregnancy is potentially unsafe. We also know that in terms of the risks of fetal alcohol syndrome, um, the, the biggest risk period is the first three to four weeks of pregnancy. So most, uh, you know, 50% of mums don't realize they're pregnant. And so they, 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 they're, they're, they're drinking and they're perhaps binge drinking during that high-risk part of pregnancy. But fundamentally, alcohol in pregnancy, I think, is more dangerous than a camprosate and naltrexone in pregnancy. So again, it goes down to risks and balances. But overall, I believe that for most patients, the benefits of these anti-craving medications outweigh the risks of these anti-craving medications in view of the reduction in, in alcohol-associated problems, in particular the fetal alcohol syndrome. Absolutely, and I couldn't agree with you more. It, this is all about harm reduction. Yeah. These drugs may not be category A, but the effects of not using these drugs could be devastating. So I'm, yeah. I'm with you, Fergal. I would not hesitate to prescribe this to 
patients who are at risk of relapse uh, of alcohol use disorder in pregnancy. Yeah. Now, moving on to some other medications, which are probably outside the scope of most general practitioners in terms of relapse prevention medications for alcohol use disorder. Uh, Baclofen uh, is a medication that we sometimes use for uh, an, as an anti-craving agent. Mm. What are your thoughts about baclofen, Fergal? Well, first of all, it's quite dangerous. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's a it's a GABA B receptor agonist, uh, so you, it, it it can be problematic. But um, the history of baclofen in the in the context of alcohol use disorder started out in France when there was a French cardiothoracic surgeon who finally managed to overcome his own personal demons with alcohol, and he managed to achieve what he described as la belle indifférence, which means the beautiful indifference. So with high doses of baclofen, he was able to walk past a drink and not really want one. Uh, so it, it does achieve that uh, for some people, but I think the effect is dose dependent. And, you know, uh, for spasticity, we might be using maybe 5 to 10 milligrams TDS. For alcohol use disorder, some people advocate even going up to 100 three times a day. I think it's. I think you have to be very careful with it. I think it very much is not second, first or second line, so it's third or fourth line. And also bear in mind, one of the side effects of baclofen is stomach ulcers. So, you know, you're, you're, you're giving someone who's got a precarious gut lining because of exposure to alcohol another drug that is potentially going to cause a stomach ulcer. So, you know, again, it boils down to risk benefit. However, if, if someone has had a good go at a campersate, a good go at naltrexone, or if those drugs are contraindicated, I would start, or I'd talk to them about the possibility of baclofen. Um, and I'd start low and go slow, and I'd push the dose up to maybe 20, 25 TDS before I'd say, look, it's probably not going to work. Uh, I'm not as brave and as venge- and as venge- and as adventurous as the European physicians who push the dose right up to 100 milligrams three times a day. Absolutely, and I think also with cessation of baclofen, uh, our, our viewers, if if you are going to go down that path, just remember: do not stop it suddenly. Yes. It, the, Baclofen must be weaned down just yes. because there are risks of seizures and withdrawal symptoms if baclofen has ceased rapidly. But I think the take-home message is it is an option. There are significant side effects and it can be dangerous. So I would probably consult a local addiction medicine service or specialist before starting this in primary care practice. Would that be fair, Fergal? Yeah, look, I, I don't believe that anybody, even addiction medicine specialists, should be operating in as a solo practitioner you need a, a team around you you know there are no lone rangers in, in recovery i don't believe there are any lone rangers in the management of addiction in general so you know have a chat with your team members you know have a chat with your colleagues have a chat with your network you know it should all the, these kind of treatment decisions should never be made alone and i certainly don't make these treatment decisions on my own i always chat to colleagues absolutely and I think the last medication we'll touch on briefly is, is tapiramate, which yeah. is a anti-seizure, anti-epileptic medication, yeah. which has some use as an anti-craving medication. Yeah. I'm going to be honest, I've never used tapiramate uh, as an anti-craving medication. I've used it for many other reasons, but yeah. not, not as an anti-craving medication. Have you had any practical experience with tapiramate as an anti-craving agent, Fergal? 
Not, no, I, I haven't used it as an anti-craving agent. I've used it for epilepsy and I've used it for migraine and various other types of primary headache syndromes, but not anti-craving. Um, but theoretically, you know, it, it, it can be used. It, it, there, is, there is an emerging evidence base for it in terms of anti-craving, both for alcohol and also for food. So, you know, it is co-formulated with um, Zyban, uh, as a drug called Contrave. So, you know, it, 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 there is an emerging basis to understand its effect on the reward system, both for food and alcohol. But it's, it's very much not first, second, third, or even fourth line. Absolutely. So this has been yet another episode where we've gone through a fair bit of information. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this journey of this episode and the series thus far. Thanks very much, Fergal, for your company again on this episode. And to our viewers, bye for now.